Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Job. Job chapter 23. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 548. What great singing this morning. I love to stand here in the front and sing with you and hear you sing. And it's very special if you've traveled around and been in other churches, then you understand what I'm talking about. Not every church sings like you do. And I think it's a blessing and it's important. Job chapter 23. Well, I read in one of the resources that I'm using for this series this week, a chapter on uh, the material that I'm speaking on today. And the author began his chapter by saying this, if you're like me, you're ready for a pause in the book of Job. (laughs) And so you may find yourself feeling that way this morning. And I trust that as we finish the last cycle of speeches in this book, uh, things will get easier through the last four sermons. And can you believe it? This is sermon eight. There's four more and we'll be finished with the book. And so... I'm greatly encouraged by you hanging in there with me uh, through this difficult but very rich book. And so this morning I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject, when God is silent. Job chapter 23, and we'll begin reading in verse number 8 to the end of the chapter. And this is what the Word of God says. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him, but he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot is held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. Therefore... I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. At one time or another, most, if not all of us, have asked, where is God or God if you are there why don't you do something whether it's a financial crisis a broken relationship the death of a loved one the disappointments of life the sudden and unexpected diagnosis or the unrelenting pain suffering and sorrow that comes with living in a fallen world, at one point or another, all of us have experienced the questions that come when God is silent. In Job chapters 22 to 26, we come to the third and final round of speeches between Job and his friends. And we'll see this morning in these chapters that Job's friends take advantage of God's silence by viciously attacking Job with their presumptions. We'll see Job perplexed with the silence of God. And we'll see Job teach us the perspective that all of us need to have when we find that God is silent. Now, as I've encouraged you each week, I will encourage you again this morning to keep your Bible open on your lap and follow along with me if you don't. You'll be lost very, very quickly in our time together today. 
And I want to begin with the presumptions of God's silence found in chapter 22 and in chapter 25. So turn with me to chapter 22. And in chapter 22, Eliphaz, the leader of the friends, will speak for the final time. And in this chapter, he levels piercing accusations towards Job. In Job chapter 22, verses 1 through 4, he says that Job is arrogant. And in a series of rhetorical questions that are all meant to be answered in the negative, Eliphaz in 22 verses 1 through 4 angrily attacks Job and he accuses him of pride. He says, beginning in verse 2, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? And according to Eliphaz in these verses, Job was acting all of this time in these round of speeches as if he were profitable to God and that he somehow through his life brought pleasure to the Almighty. And what, jo what Eliphaz is really saying to Job in these first four verses is, Job, who do you think you are? Acting as if God, the God of the universe, the Almighty God would even care about you or give a thought about you. And in verse 4, of chapter 22, Eliphaz moves from accusing Job to mocking him, literally asking Job if God was punishing Job because of his reverence for God. And in all of these words in these verses, Eliphaz is accusing Job of being full of pride and arrogance. You see, Eliphaz, if you'll recall, his theology centered around a distant God who only operated in the realm of retribution, a God who only blessed the righteous and the good, and a God who only punished the wicked. And therefore, in Eliphaz's mind, because God is silent, and because Job is suffering, Job is wicked. Job is full of pride and arrogance. Job is a sinner. And in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 22, that's exactly what Eliphaz says. He says that Job is not only arrogant, but that Job is a sinner. And in verse 5 of chapter 22, we read Eliphaz's key statement. He says, Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. Job, I'm telling you, you need to listen to me. There is no end to the sin that is in your life. And then in verses 6 through 11, without any evidence whatsoever, Eliphaz accuses Job of being a hypocrite by taking pledges from his brothers and then stripping them of their clothing until they could pay their debts, of withholding food and water from the weary and the hungry, of refusing to share his riches and show hospitality by turning away widows and orphans. And then in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 22, Eliphaz finishes his accusation by telling Job that the stockpile of his sins have literally ensnared him and overwhelmed him and cast him into darkness, and he is suffering as a result of his wickedness. But if you've been following along in the book of Job, you know that what Eliphaz is saying about Job in these verses is simply not true. Job is not being punished for his sin. And then in verses 12 to 20 of chapter 22, Eliphaz accuses Job of trying to hide his sin. In verses 12 to 14, he accuses Job of thinking that he can hide his sin from God. Do you see what he says? Job, is not God high in the heavens? See the highest stars, how lofty they are? But you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? And then in an amazing set of verses in 15 to 20, Eliphaz sarcastically asks Job if he continues to plan 
to follow the path of the wicked. And he literally tells Job in these verses that Job is following the same path of destruction that the people of Noah's day followed when they denied the goodness and the greatness of God and God brought judgment on them through the flood. And in verses 15 to 20, Eliphaz tells Job, you're denying the greatness of God just like they did. And just as God punished them with the judgment of floodwaters over the earth, God is bringing that kind of judgment on you, Job, and that's why you are suffering. And you're trying to hide your sins, but God sees them all. And can I just pause for a moment and tell you that one of the things, as we've seen all through the book of Job, is amazing is the fact that Job's friends sometimes speak what is true. And in a sense, what he is speaking to Job in these verses is true. How many of us try from time to time to cover our sins and hide them from God? And it's a fool's errand. You can't hide anything from God. God sees everything. And then at the end of the chapter, in verses 21 to 30, Eliphaz tells Job he's unrepentant. He says in these verses, Job, if you'll just confess your sins and if you'll just repent, God will heal you and God will restore you. He tells Job that if he'll submit to God and make peace with him in verse 21, if he'll receive God's word in verse 22... If he'll return to the Almighty God in verse 23, and if he'll remove sin from his life in verse 23, God will heal him of his suffering, and all of his pain and sorrow will come to an end. And what Eliphaz says here in verses 21 to 23 is true. This is a true and accurate picture of what it means to repent of your sins and turn to God and trust in Him for forgiveness and salvation. He's just misapplying it to Job. Job does not need to do these things because Job is not living in sin. Job has not wandered away from his God. But Eliphaz is undeterred. And in verse 25 to the end of the chapter, he tells Job that if Job will confess his sin and if Job will repent, that God will once again be his treasure. In verse 25 and verses 26 and 27, Job will once again experience fellowship with God. In verse 28, light will shine on Job's paths and his way of life once again. And in verses 28 to 30, Job's influence will be restored and he'll have an impact on the lives of other people. Eliphaz is not saying anything new. It's the same thing that he's been saying to Job since chapter 4. Job, you're full of pride. Job, you're arrogant. Job, you're trying to cover up your sins. Job, you just need to confess and repent. He is a one-trick pony. Now turn with me to chapter 25. And we move from Eliphaz's presumptions when God is silent upon Job to Bildad's. And there's good news for you this morning. Chapter 25 is the shortest chapter in the book of Job. And we only have to endure Bildad's words for six verses. Good news. And in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 25, here's what Bildad says to Job. Job, you're nothing but a worm. You're a maggot, Job. Look at what he says. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. In this final speech of Bildad, he is short and he is to the point. And his conclusion is that there is no hope for any human being in dealing with God. 
especially Job. Remember, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar came to comfort and encourage Job and extend sympathy to him. And this is their definition of comfort and sympathy. Job, you're nothing but a maggot and a worm. And there is absolutely no hope for you. There's no hope for you, Job, because in verses 2 to 3, God is full of dominion and fear. They all belong to him. Nothing and no one can overrule God's reign. God cannot be controlled, Job. God cannot be resisted. His gaze is upon everyone and everything, and all dominion belongs to God, and all fear belongs to him. And Job, as a result of God's greatness in verse 4, Bildad says, how can a mere man be made right with a God like this? How can one who is born of a woman have fellowship and relationship with God? And I would say to you what I just said to you about Eliphaz. Here, once again, Bildad gets something right. Because that's the question, isn't it? How can mere man be right with the God of the universe, especially when he is born into sin? And what Bildad is actually arguing here is the total depravity of man. That man is born totally depraved. That there's not an area of man's life that is not tainted by sin. That he is born in sin, that he has a propensity to sin, and that even the good things that man tries to do in his life are all corrupted and affected by sin. Sin inside of him and sin outside of him. Man is totally depraved. And Bildad says to Job, Job, God is so pure God is so full of dominion and fear that even the stars and the galaxies are not pure before God. And how do you think a sinful human being like yourself can be made right with God? And oh, I wish, I wish there was just one more verse in this chapter. One more verse that gives Job the answer that he's been searching for for 25 chapters. The answer of his Redeemer. The answer of his Mediator. The answer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, dear friends, Bildad is right. How can sinful man who is totally depraved be made right with a holy God? And there's only one answer to that question. And it is through God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who knew no sin, who became sin for us so that we might be made right in and through him with this glorious God. The answer to sin is not you trying to do better. The answer to sin is not you trying to outweigh the good with the bad. You will never tip the scales in that equation. The answer for you, friend, is one answer and one answer only. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and no one can come to a holy God except through him. And so, he's the answer to your sin and he's the answer to your suffering. Can't you see that? Bildad couldn't see it. All he can offer to Job is this question. Job, in your sin, can't you see you're a worm? Can't you see, Job, you're a maggot? You're a bug in God's sight. And I want you to know that Bildad's perception of humanity is not true. Yes, we're sinners and we're born in sin with a sinful nature. But there is not one time in the word of God that God calls us worms and maggots. He says that we are made in his image. And he cares and is concerned so much about us that when we couldn't get to him, he came to us through his 
son. And don't you ever forget that. No matter how deep in sin you may find yourself, no matter how painful your suffering is, don't you ever forget that through the grace of God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you matter to God. So, what are we to think of Eliphaz and Bildad? Well, I'm sure you have lots of thoughts about Eliphaz and Bildad. I want to give you a couple. Number one, Eliphaz teaches us through his example not to judge the hearts and the motives of others in their suffering. He teaches us not to play the role of the Holy Spirit. That when God is silent, it is not your job to be the third person of the Trinity. As if you have it all figured out. Let me help you with that. You don't. And your suffering friend certainly believes that you don't. Eliphaz teaches us not to force confession and repentance. Confession and repentance are a matter of the heart. And only God can bring a person to conviction and confession and repentance. That's God's job. Your job is to tell them the truth and point them to God, and God will take care of the rest. And Eliphaz tells us never to promise a quick fix to someone's pain. Don't presume upon God or the suffering when God is silent. That's the lesson from Eliphaz. Well, number two, what about Bildad? Well, Bildad teaches us through his example never to think that you have God figured out. Bildad missed the, do you see the glaring thing that Bildad missed? If his counsel to Job is correct, that Job, born of a woman, is really a worm and a maggot, do you see where I'm going with this church? Do you know what that means for Bildad? He is a worm and a maggot. But somehow, that thought has missed Bildad. Number three. Both Eliphaz and Bildad are correct that God is the Almighty. He's the one who has dominion over all things. And he is the one who should be honored and revered. However, they are both wrong in thinking and teaching that God is so far above his creation that he is not interested in us. Never forget when you're suffering and when God is silent that God has not abandoned you. That God has not forsaken you even in the silence. That God is deeply interested in you. And that God is concerned about your welfare in life. What happens to you matters to Him. The Bible tells us over and over that God bears burdens with us, that God brings comfort to us in our affliction, that God calms our fears and gives us peace, and that God guards us in times of danger. And so, friends, when God is silent, don't ever forget that He's not abandoned you. He is deeply interested and involved in every area of your life. His silence does not mean he doesn't care. When we not only see the presumptions of God's silence, secondly, in chapter 23 and 24, we see the perplexities of God's silence. And I will tell you now, this is the longest part of the sermon, and I'm drilling down for a little bit. So stay with me. I think you will find these chapters extremely helpful. Instead of answering the arguments of his friends, in chapters 23 and 24, Job ignores his friends and he cries out to God from the depths of his troubled soul. And in chapter, three, in chapter 23 and chapter 24, he asks two questions that all sufferers at one time or another ask in the midst of God's silence. And I guarantee you this morning, as sure as I'm standing on this platform, you've asked at least one of these two questions at some point in your life, if not both of them. In chapter 23, he asks, where is God? 
And he begins this chapter by acknowledging the weight of his suffering. Look in verse 2. Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. And in verse 2, Job says that he has tasted the bitterness of his suffering, and that even in spite of his groaning, God's hand of heaviness remains on him. And I found Warren Wiersbe to be very helpful concerning verse 2. And he gives us this reminder about one who is suffering under the heaviness and the bitterness and the weight of suffering. And he says, the next time you visit somebody in pain, keep in mind that suffering drains a person's energy and makes great demands on their strength and their patience. It's bitter. It's heavy. It's painful. And this is what Job is expressing In his complaint, Job accuses God of hiding from him in verse 3. He says that he longs to find the location of God's courtroom so he could appear before God's judgment seat and present his case and make all of his arguments in verses 3 and 4. And Job believes that if he were given this opportunity to appear before God, God would not overpower him. But instead, God would pay attention to him, and God would answer him, and God would ultimately acquit Job forever. And it's clear in these first seven verses of chapter 23 that Job believes that God will deal with him much more graciously than his friends have. But now look, look in verses 8 and 9. Job catches our attention in these verses by using the word behold it's a call to wake up like if if you're lost in job's bitter complaining he says to you behold wake up i'm getting ready to tell you something very very important and with the use of that word he goes on to describe the futility of his search for god look at verses eight and nine behold I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. Do you see what Job is saying? Where is God? I'm looking all over for him. I can't find him. I look to the front of me, but God is not there. I look behind me, but I don't perceive him. I sense that God is over here working to my left, but when I turn and look, he's not there. I can't behold him. I look to the right, maybe he's working over there, but I do not see him. Job cannot find God. He's looked to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. He's looked everywhere. And he cannot find God. But then, in verse number 10, even though Job could not find God, Job declares that God can find him. Look at verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. You should underline, highlight, Circle whatever you got to do in your Bible to remember this verse. Now, there's two major interpretations to this verse. And I think one of them is the correct one. The first one is the most common one. God, knowing the way that Job takes in contrast to Job not finding God. But I don't think that's what this verse means. The Hebrew literally means this. God knows his way with me. It's not that God 
knows what Job is doing as if Job is in charge of what's happening in his life. It's that God knows what he is doing with Job. And can you see, friends, this confident statement of faith on the part of Job? That even if Job cannot understand the purpose of the suffering that is going on in his life, Job is confident that he knows what God is up to and what God is doing in his life. And if you look carefully in verse number 10, Job is beginning to get a glimpse of the reason why he is suffering. Do you see it? He says, and when he has tried me. Job, why are you suffering? Because you're being tested. Friends, God is not punishing Job. God is not acting haphazardly with Job's life. God is testing Job. And even though Job may not understand everything that is happening in his life or why it had to happen in the first place, Job realizes there is a purpose for his suffering. And that's why I say to you, friends, you will come back to this verse over and over again through the course of your life. There is always a purpose behind your pain. God always knows what he is doing with and in your life. And Job says, when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. Now, he's referring to the purification of metals. That metals like gold are heated up to a hot temperature. And then as they begin to cool, all the impurities of the metal rise to the surface it's called dross, and they scrape it off the surface so that what's left is pure. But now remember, Job hasn't sinned. So Job's not saying that God is going to remove impurities from my life. Here's what Job is saying. God knows his way with me. He's got a purpose for everything that is happening to me. And when his purpose is accomplished, it will prove that I've been gold all along. That's what he's saying. That I belong to God. I love what David Jeremiah says about this. Gold never fears the fire. The furnace can only make gold purer and brighter. And that is how it is for both Job and us. The fire refines our faith. It purifies us. It makes us shine even brighter with the light of God's glory. But now notice what happens in verses 11 and 12. Let's read those. My foot is held fast to his steps. I've kept his way and have not turned aside. I've not departed from the commandment of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. In these verses, Job declares that he's held fast to God's steps, that he's kept God's way, that he's not departed from God's commands, and he's treasured God's words more than food and drink. Now, this is fascinating. Do you remember what I've taught you about the book of Job? It's the oldest book in your Bible. And what is Job testifying to in these verses? That he's clinging to the word of God. That he is obeying God's commands. And yet, Job does not have a copy of the written word of God. God has met with Job. God has spoken to Job. And Job has held fast to that communion with God and with those words that God has spoken to him. And Job declares that his words are my guide and his words are my nourishment more than food or water. I am committed to God's word and I am committed to God's ways. And friends, this I think is the key to Job's endurance through it all. He's held fast, as he says, to the ways of God and to the word of God and to the will of God. And that's what's helped him endure in his suffering. And can I just say to you parenthetically, that's what will help you endure in your suffering. The same thing that Job did. But now look in verse 
13. He makes a grand statement about God. He says, but God is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. And Job is absolutely right. God is unchangeable. Who can resist him? Who can turn him back? Who can change him? He is in a class all by himself. The psalmist says that he sits in the heavens and he does everything that he pleases. Can you grasp Job's words here in the midst of his suffering on the ash heap? just totally frustrated with his friends and has checked out on them and he is just declaring things about God. It's almost as if he is in a time of worship with God Almighty while his friends watch what's taking place. You're unchangeable, God. You do all of your will. And then, it's amazing, from verse 14, he says, look at it, God will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. God's the unchangeable one. He's sovereign over everything. He knows his way with me, and he's going to finish everything he has started in me. Notice the end of the verse. Do you see it? And many such things are in his mind. God's got many plans for Job. And he's going to finish what he started. And do you know what this caused Job to do? Look at verses 15 to 17. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider that many such things are in his mind, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because of thick darkness covering my face. He's terrified at the prospects of what else God is going to do in and through his life. And so do you know how he ends this chapter? God, where are you? I've searched for you. I can't find you. But I'm trusting you know what you're doing in my life. I just wish I could know. I just wish I could find you. You ever been there? In chapter 24, he asks the second question that all sufferers ask. Why doesn't God do something? In in verse 1 of chapter 24, he looks up to heaven and he asks God why he doesn't pour out his judgment on the wicked and why he doesn't reward the righteous. He says, why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? And then in verses 2 to 11, he describes all the injustices that he sees in the countryside, especially those that affect the vulnerable and the poor. And when you read verses 2 through 11 of Job chapter 24, Job gives one of the most graphic pictures of the poor found anywhere in all of God's word. The landmarks marking their property are removed so people can steal their property. Their flocks are seized. They're insulted. They look for food in fields like animals. They freeze in the cold because somebody's taken all of their clothing. They drench in the rain because they have no house. Their children are snatched from their arms. They're forced to work for the rich, and they're not allowed to eat any of the food they harvest. They work in the wine press, but they go thirsty. And Job is saying with all of these descriptions, God, all of this is happening under your watch. Why aren't you doing something about it? Why aren't you dealing with these problems? God, you've got so much time dealing with me. Why don't you take your attention off me and deal with these things? You ever said that? And then in verses 12 to 17, he talks about the injustices that he sees in the city. In verses 12 and 13, he says, The wicked seem to get away with everything. In verse 14, he says, murderers are not punished. In verse 15, he says, the adulterer commits adultery and has no consequences. They get away with it. They keep living any way they want to. He says in verse 16 that the thief is allowed to continue to steal. And he says in verse 17 that darkness seems to prevail over everything. 
Man, it's almost as if he's been living in 2021, right? There's relevancy here. The word of God is relevant. So what does he do with all this? Well, he's asking God, why don't you act? Why don't you act? So then in verses 18 to 21, Job says that if he were in charge, this is what he would do. And it's almost as if he took the role of the psalmist and started hurling imprecatory psalms. You know, the psalms that say, God, go get my enemies. God, go punish them. And he gives one curse after another after another in verses 18 to 21, telling God that he needs to act in this way on all of this evil. And then in verses 22 to 24, he says that the wicked get away with all their evil deeds. They're secure, but it's only for a time. And then they'll be cut off one day like heads of grain. And look how he ends this chapter, the very last verse. Now he speaks to his friends. And he says, if it is not so, who will prove me a liar and show that there is nothing in what I say? He looks at Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. You've been quiet. If what I've said is not true, tell me where I've lied. So what do we do with these questions? Well, I have several applications to help us. Here's the first one. I wonder how many of us this morning can relate to Job. I wonder how many of us have said, maybe even today, where is God? Did you know that the Bible is full of accounts of people who ask that question? Listen to a couple of them. In Psalm 10, 1, the psalmist said, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The psalmist wondered where God was in difficulty. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 45, 15, said, Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. There's testimony after testimony in the Bible of people who feel just like you. Where is God when I need him? But I want to remind you of what the psalmist said in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10 this morning. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the other most parts of the sea, even there, listen to what he says in verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Did you hear what he said? In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trouble, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your sorrow, when God is silent, when you seem like Job to not be able to find God in that very moment, the psalmist says God's hand is leading you. And listen, his hand is holding you. And that's just what Jesus said when you come to know him as your savior, that he and the father are one and he holds you in the palm of his hands and no one or nothing can take you out of Christ's hand. He leads you and he holds you in the midst of your suffering, whether you realize he's there or not. It's not based on how you feel. It's based on what the word of God says. Number two, some of us handle the furnace of God's affliction better than others. What's the difference? Here's what I think the difference is. It's your attitude to the will of God, the ways of God, and the word of God. That will make all the difference in your suffering and hardship. That you submit to God's will to God's ways, and to God's words. And you will find nourishment, you will find comfort, you will find strength, even when God seems silent. God's word was more necessary to Job than food or drink. He understood the need for the word of God in his suffering. Do you? Do you? Because I've found that most people in their times of suffering... Abandon the word of God, first thing. Job didn't. 
Number three, Job declared that God knew what he was doing with him even when he didn't understand. Do you believe God knows what he's doing with you? Or do you think your plan's better? Do you? Do you really believe that? That God knows what he's doing with you? Do you really believe like Job that God will complete what he has appointed for you? And will you, like Job, continue to worship and serve him even when you don't understand? Even when it seems that you can't find God? Will you continue to worship him and serve him? Number four. One commentator said, faith that waits in silence is deeper than Faith that rants and rails at the perplexities of life and experience. Real faith knows there's a God at work even when there is no sign of him. Do you believe that's true? That God is at work even when you can't see him. Number five. When you think about the evil that goes unpunished in the world like Job did, would you remember what the Bible says about that? That God is withholding his judgment for a time to give people an opportunity to repent and come to him. And aren't you grateful that he does that, friends? Because if God were to judge sin instantly the moment it happens, none of us would be in this room right now. And I would say to every unbeliever in the room today, this is a warning for you. That God is being patient with you right now. He's showing kindness towards you by not judging you and your sin and your disobedience to him. But there's coming a day when his patience will end and he will judge you. And the only hope for you in that moment is trusting in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you and dying for your sins. Here's the final application. Both my grandma and Gretchen's grandma quilted. And Gretchen's grandma made a baby quilt for every one of our children. And I got to thinking about what Job is telling us in these verses about God's work and way in his life. And it made me think of our grandmother's quilting. How do they begin? They have all of these patches and pieces of material, and they're all kind of thrown out on uh, the table and they're being arranged and put together and in the beginning phases of it you can't you can't see what it's going to be you can just imagine it right but then after hours and hours of care and diligence and sewing and weaving all of those patterns together when it's finished and you hold it up it's a masterpiece and you say, now I see it. Right? And that is exactly what Job is saying about God's work in our life through suffering. That to us, it looks like a hodgepodge of material. And how's it all going to fit together? And how's it all going to bring him glory? And how is he going to use it all? But he knows he knows his way with us, and he'll fulfill everything he's appointed for us. And in the end, when we stand before him in glory, it'll be a masterpiece and a treasure. Don't ever forget that. Well, we've seen the presumption, presumptions of God's silence and the perplexity of, of God's silence Finally, I want you to see the perspective we need when God is silent. And by the way, be encouraged, this is the shortest part of the sermon. In chapter 26, before speaking of the greatness of God, Job directly speaks to Bildad. Most commentators say it's as if Job just got tired of hearing Bildad talk in chapter 25 and he just cut him off. I've heard enough of you. And then what he does in the rest of chapter 26 
is magnify the greatness of God. And in verses 5 to 13, Job declares the power, the greatness, and the authority of God over every realm of life. In verses 5 and 6, he says that God has authority over the realm of the dead. In verse 7, he says that God has authority over the reach of the heavens and the rotation of the earth. In verses 8 to 11, he says that God has authority over all nature, including the clouds and the mountains, the land and the water, and the day and the night. In verses 12 to 13, he says that God has authority over all the forces of evil. And Job's point is this, nothing and no one is outside of the sovereign authority and control of God. Now notice verse 14. He begins this verse the way we saw him back in 23. Behold, making sure we're paying attention. Are you paying attention? I feel like you're paying attention. Just checking. This is a good time to pay attention. Behold. And then he makes a profound statement describing the activity of God. Look at verse 14. These are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power who can understand these are but the outskirts of his ways. What are these? Everything he said in verses 5 to 13. That all of God's sovereign authority and control over all the things that he listed in verses 5 to 13. Uh, translated for you, over every realm of life are simply the outskirts or the fringes, as some translations say, of God's ways. That they are merely a whisper of the incomprehensibility of a sovereign God. Job is saying you can only understand a fraction of God's greatness. One translator said in this language that's used in verse 14 that Job is using language that describes the use of a telescope. It's as if Job were looking up into the greatness and the majesty of God and he can only understand and see and perceive the greatness and the majesty of God like looking through a telescope to the stars. It's so far beyond him. It seems as if it's a whisper Paul thought the same thing. He said in Romans eleven thirty three, 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. You can't fathom the unfathomable. You can't comprehend the incomprehensible. You can only understand the greatness and the majesty of God as a fraction or a whisper. That's how great God is. Well, can't you see him, friends? Can't you see Job worshiping God for his greatness in his suffering on the ash heap? A.W. Tozer is very helpful in helping us think about the greatness of God. He says, left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. And he is absolutely right. That is one of the greatest problems of modern Christianity. Lowering the greatness of God and putting God on our level. He says we want to get God where we can use him. Or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God we can in some measure control. He's right. He's right. He goes on. You cannot worship a God whom you entirely understand. If you could, you would reduce God to your own status. He would be equal to you as the worshiper. And such a low thought of God is blasphemy. God cannot be brought down to us in that way. God is beyond our comprehension. And it is in the face of this sobering realization that our hearts are filled with awe and reverence toward Him. Our God is great and worthy to be praised. And that 
is what Job is saying in this verse. And notice his last question at the end of his dealing with his friends. Who can understand the thunder of God's power? Who can? Can you? You think you got him figured out? You think you've made him manageable so you can control him and manipulate him? You can't control this God. He is sovereign over you. Chuck Swindoll said, I've finally come to realize one of the benefits of going through times of suffering is that my focus turns vertical to God. And can't you see, friends, can't you see that's what Job is doing? He's taking his eyes off his friends. He's not talking about his suffering right now. What's he talking about? His God. He is dealing with his God. His attention is turned vertical to the greatness and the majesty of God. And I want to submit to you this morning, dear Christian, dear suffering friend, this is the perspective that you need when God is silent. Instead of viewing his silence negatively, Job helps us to see it as a mere whisper in the light of his ultimate greatness. And Job... Job was not alone in interpreting God's silence this way and in trusting himself to God. Jesus, when he hung on the cross and his father went silent as the weight of your sin and my sin and the sins of the world went upon him, when God was silent, Jesus looked to heaven and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Even Jesus, when he died and suffered, trusted in the greatness of God. That is the perspective that you need. Dr. Erwin Lutzer is the former pastor of Moody Memorial Church in downtown Chicago. He tells the story of being on an airplane one time, uh, sitting beside a retired commercial pilot. And Dr. Lutzer and the pilot struck up a conversation about planes and about flying. And he told Dr. Lutzer that many people think that uh, large planes are safer than smaller planes. And he said the issue is with pilot error that small planes are safe they're safe just as the large planes but the problem is with the pilots that when the pilots get in a situation they stop looking at their instruments in these smaller planes and they begin to trust their judgment and their feelings and so when the gauges on their dash tell them that the plane is level and straight, they feel that it's banking to the right or to the left. And so they'll make adjustments on their own without looking at the instruments on the panel. And he said that is the number one reason small planes crash. And here's his quote. The error of inexperienced pilots is that they refuse to believe their instruments. In a storm, they trust their instincts rather than their navigation instruments, and that's what gets them into trouble. And what I say to you today, friends, that is the same thing that gets you and I in trouble in our suffering. We trust our instincts. We trust our feelings. And we take our eyes off the dash of God's word, God's will, and God's ways. And we lose sight of his greatness. And so I wonder today, when God is silent, will you trust in your intuition and your feelings? Or will you trust in him, in his word? He knows his way with you. He will complete everything he has appointed for you. And when the trial is over, 
you will come forth as gold. Gold, even when God is silent. Do you believe that? Let's pray.